agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm very pleased to welcome a new host to the show this week, my former NKU colleague, political scientist Ryan Teeden. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor. I I think I told you last week, longtime fan, first-time caller, so I'm very excited to uh to be on part of the politics guys, man. Yeah, I'm glad you're here with us. And maybe to get started, you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself, your professional background, your areas that you focused on as a political scientist, that sort of thing, so they can get a sense of you. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it'll it'll add some credibility too. So they're not like, who the hell is this guy coming in out of nowhere? Um, I uh to begin, and I'll go way back just because um some of the things we've discussed are are dealing with this state, but I was born in Nebraska. Um, in fifth grade, we moved to Richmond, Virginia. Um, at that point, I was at Manchester High School, which is a high school right outside um, in Midlothian, Virginia. Uh, after high school, I went to Clemson University, so down in South Carolina, where I double majored in political science and English and double minored in Spanish and history. Um, but bigger than any of that, I met Tanya, my wife, um, and that was fantastic. We've been married for 25 years now. I got my I then went to Vandy and got my Ph.D. in American politics and political theory, um, specializations in American institutions and political behavior and political communication. Um, and so after spending you know four years there in Kentucky, um, we moved 1400 miles away to the University of Louisiana Lafayette um, and were there for 13 years. Um, I moved from assistant professor to associate dean of the College of Liberal Arts, to associate professor, to full professor, to departmental chair for political science, to the associate dean of the university college. Um, and then over that period from uh, Vandy all the way through to uh, Louisiana and the University of Nebraska Kearney, I have taught and published on um, specialization in the Congress, uh, gerrymandering and redistricting, redistricting, got it out, uh, the presidency, elections. Um, I've taught on 9-11 in American life, pop culture and politics, term limits in Congress, uh, the media, sports and politics, politics and science fiction and fantasy film. Um, we're big movie and documentary buffs. So um, integrating those two subjects is usually fascinating. Volatile issues in political science. And those would be things like uh, even the definition of gender as we see it going across the country right now, those things that that have to have a line drawn if congressmen want to try and regulate the issue. Um, I've done work on politicians and social media and how they use Twitter and Facebook, taught on South Park and American politics, politics and video games, and many more. Um, after that, we went to the University of Nebraska Kearney, where I was the dean of the College of Arts and Science. And we then right now, and that'd be my wife, Tanya, uh, dog Danny, and three cats, are in Sneeds Ferry, North Carolina, which is right outside Surf City, as well as Camp Lejeune. Um, we get Osprey and helicopter traffic and fighter jets going over almost every day. And just, I, I want to just scream USA. It's so awesome. Um, but we are, we're, we're super, uh, glad to be back in North Carolina. Tanya's originally from North Carolina and super excited to be part of the politics guys. And I would say, please forgive me, Mike, if I am rusty as this is my first zoom in nearly six months. 
Oh, God, I, I so envy you. Well, we, we are. I am glad to have you. I think you're just going to bring a, a breadth of, of experience and knowledge to the show. And I should also point out for folks, if you're if you're a Jay fan, and I know there are a lot of Jay fans out there, don't worry. Jay's not been you know sent off into the wilderness or anything like that. He and I will be back doing the show next week. But for a while now, Jay has wanted to work on a special project for the podcast. And so when I found out that Ryan might be available to do the show on a regular basis, I talked with Jay and we thought this would be a great way to give him maybe a little more time for that project and also to bring in Ryan for for a variety of reasons. So I think will be a fantastic addition to the show. So Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. And we are going to get started with, well, we're going to talk about the Trump indictment, the Nashville shooting, AI, and a bunch of other things in just one second. All right. So we open with the indictment of Donald Trump by a Manhattan grand jury this week. Now, Trump, who has already held the dubious distinction of being the only president to be twice impeached, has now become the only ex-president to face criminal charges, stemming in this case from alleged hush money payments made to porn star Stormy Daniels in 2016. And while the specific charges haven't yet been made public, CNN and other outlets have reported that the former president and current GOP frontrunner faces more than 30 counts related to business fraud. In a statement released after the indictment was announced, Trump said, I believe this witch hunt will backfire massively on Joe Biden. The American people realize exactly what the radical left Democrats are doing here. Everyone can see it. So our movement and our party, united and strong, will first defeat Alvin Bragg, and then we will defeat Joe Biden, and we are going to throw away every last one of these crooked Democrats out of office so we can, all caps, make America great again, exclamation point in true Trumpian fashion. Prominent Republicans rallied to Trump's defense, with Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy saying that the House of Representatives will hold Alvin Bragg and his unprecedented abuse of power to account. Senator Ted Cruz called the indictment a catastrophic escalation in the weaponization of the justice system. So there we go. We kind of thought it was coming, and now it has, in fact, happened. What do you think about this historic, sad, and historic occasion, Ren? Uh, I think you're one million percent correct in the historic nature of it. Uh, I think, unfortunately, sometimes the partisanship with which we have really been heavily imbued since probably 2016 um, takes any kind of legitimacy or logical response and kind of throws it out the window, Mike. Um, I, I mean, if we saw this, we can go back 30 years. Uh, you don't even think you can go back 20 years. If we saw this 20 years ago, um, people would still be amazed at the situation, even if it was, you know, a, a Bill Clinton situation or, a, or Ronald Reagan. But but it seems now that it's a interpretation of what's happening as well. That's again, as if I can just call everything that I've done illegal, a witch hunt, that it makes it super easy to be able to maintain the people who are following me into what I hope will be a 2024 election. So um, it, it's absolutely historic. It should go down as uh, one of the biggest incidences within the American presidency. But unfortunately, I don't know that that it'll go down like that. It, it seems like it'll just be another, oh, they're coming after me. It's a witch hunt or 
um, well, there's nothing there. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. It really is. You know, I, I think Donald Trump is guilty of a lot, <laughs> but, but in, in this case, based on what we know, and of course we have not seen the specific charges that hasn't been released. It sure seems yeah. to me that this is more than a little bit of a stretch because the, of course it, it's not, it's not illegal to give porn stars, however much money you want to give them or anyone else for that matter. But uh, the underlying charge here, falsifying business records, that actually is a, is a misdemeanor and the statute of limitations has run out on that. And so the sort of novel legal theory that Bragg is relying on here is that this is tied to another crime, and that would be uh, the uh, intenting or the, uh, the the campaign finance charges, which federal prosecutors looked into and decided not to pursue. So at best, this seems shaky, I would think. And maybe Bragg knows more than people in the know think he knows or have more evidence. But wow, if if we're doing a historic first indictment of a former president, it, it sure does seem like there's not necessarily a slam dunk case here. I completely agree. I think if you're trying to bring a case, it must absolutely be the most solid, uh, strongest case that you can put together in order to make your point. It it has to go before a jury, especially if we're talking about a jury of peers, which uh, we know is a gamble in a lot of regards, that you have to come in with a literal smoking gun. And even then, there's no guarantee. I mean, we we were watching the Murdoch case, you know, everybody was watching that nationally. And I'm like, uh, they got a lot of evidence here, but it's still not a super strong case. If we're looking, talking about the Trump case, they have evidence, but it is the worst of a strong case. Because if I'm Trump, uh, Trump, I can compartmentalize it into witch hunts coming from specific states. New York never liked me. It's the liberal New Yorkers who are coming. Or or Georgia, you saw what they did down there and how uh, shady their gerrymandering. You know, I mean, and so as long as I can present that or justify that behavior as being something that is just coming to get me and it's not very serious – then that will translate. That will be exactly what will go through the masses. And so I think it's it's brilliant media messaging because everybody else is going, ah, you know, well, it's business stuff. It's just business stuff. Instead of going, wow, it's a past president that is being brought up on indictment charges in at least 30 different scenarios. So, I mean, that alone is massive, but I think he's done a tremendous job of just keeping it as a partisan hackery argumentation as opposed to something that, that could change his future. Yeah. And, and I think this plays right into that narrative. I, uh, that, you know, I, I know that last week on the show, Ken argued that, well, you know, Michael Cohen was convicted of this, but, and so therefore, if you're going to not only prosecute, but get a conviction on one person who's involved with this, the person who directed that person, well, it just stands to reason. But I guess I yeah. disagree with that logic because in Cohen's case, number one, he pleaded guilty. And number two, he was the one who was directly involved in making those payments and the tax evasion and other things, whereas Trump's connection is less clear on that. And and so I, I don't really buy that argument. I understand that no one is above the law in theory, but in practice, Correct. I mean, every day prosecutors make decisions about people that they 
know or are pretty sure are guilty. And the question they have to ask themselves is, well, is this something that is worth the time and effort of this office? Can I get a conviction? And what will the collateral damage be of making an attempt? And so I I don't think it's as simple as nobody is above the law. No, I I think that um, in a world where all is fair, uh, then that makes sense that nobody is above the law. But that's not the way it works. And if you're looking at Cohen, for example, with the standard flip against another person, you're going, well, I got a lower level drug dealer that will then flip on a higher level supplier. And but this isn't that you have a lower level drug dealer who's ratting out a Hollywood superstar who has armed militia that could enact change should he want that in a very violent way. This is in no way the same thing. And so I I think it goes back to your first point, Mike, where it has to be a concrete case. It has to be an open shut. There is no question. This is what happened. Because if there's even a bit of question, well, it'll be in the legal system for the next 20 years and we'll never have any kind of resolution. Yeah, I I agree. And, and, you know, I understand the argument again last week from Ken saying that, well, he's going to be indicted on other things. And so we might as well just do this one so I can be first. But to me, that actually potentially makes the case in future indictments harder because they say, well, there's this one witch hunt thing where clearly there was no evidence. They're just, you know, going at me again and again. Yep. Yep. And I think that'll continue. If you have something that is dismissed, nothing else will stick. And I think it has to be so severe. And we can see these from legal cases throughout history where someone is exonerated from an initial charge and then continues horrible, horrible behavior that is revealed maybe upon their death or something 20 years later because that first case was not enough to make sure that they were taken out of uh, that dangerous situation. So I think that there is that warning here where it may end up making him bulletproof against court incidences because he will then just be able to say, oh, it's just like what happened in X or it's just like what happened in Y. Witch hunt, radical left, DEI, throw CRT in there too, whatever it is, get all those buzzwords in. So yeah, I I think they will have a difficulty, especially in a year before an election year, doing anything that would be able to um, bring any kind of criminal charge that would be significant enough. But uh, and I may be completely wrong, Mike, because I was sitting on 2016 doing radio coverage. And when we started it, it was uh, how many states will Hillary win? And when yeah. we ended it, it was <laughs> yeah. what the heck happened. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, yeah, please put a, put a pin in that. It's not necessarily a given, but given po- political history, that's the way it should have worked out. But but I don't see this the same way at all. With with Trump, truly all bets are off. Yeah, I, I think the, the case against Trump, from what we know in, in the classified documents issue, that's a lot stronger. Uh, that whole yes. lying about the documents, especially since I, uh, apparently one of them was found in his desk. So, you know, it's, it's a little yeah. harder to kind of work your way out from that. But but it doesn't make it it's not going to make it easier. And then you have to think, at least that some some people are going to be thinking, well, OK, who is Alvin Bragg and why did he decide to go ahead when the previous Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance Jr., launched an investigation and said, well, I'm not going to move forward. And, and you know, he's right. Bragg is a young guy by political years. He's 49. And you can say, well, maybe he's eyeing, I don't know, a house seat in 26, maybe Chuck Schumer yeah, yeah. seat. And and this is this is it. He's concerned about his political career, his political. And now he, I know he said that that's not the case. What's he going to say? But if if I'm thinking that way, someone who, you know, voted for voted for Biden and voted for kind of holding my nose, voted for Hillary in 2016. I mean, a lot of people I think are going to be thinking that. And so I am just I, I do not. 
I am not questioning necessarily that Donald Trump, I think Donald Trump almost certainly did this based on what I know, but wow, I think this was a huge miscalculation uh, by, uh, by the Manhattan DA. Might, might work out for him, but I don't think it's going to work out well for the country. So do you have a second for a question then? Because I, I wonder how much this will actually impact the curve of his voting base. And I don't think it would even move a voter. I think the people who are going to vote for Trump in 2024, um, short of something, well, uh, it'd have to be uh, uber um, extreme because it seems like everything else in the world has come out and not had sticking ability. So I, I, I unfortunately think this falls into the exact same camp yeah. that it will not move the needle to affect him for the people who um, see Joe Biden and Hillary as synonymous and this evil machine of the radical left, et cetera. And so um, that that's more of my concern is that we're getting away from legitimate court processes and law with just being able to say, Witch hunt, none yeah. of it's fair. I um, I, yeah. I completely agree. And in fact, I think if anything, I, I think the case you can make is that it makes him stronger in the Republican primaries and maybe a little bit weaker in the general election. But honestly, given how polarized the country is and the fact that Trump can count on, you know, uh, a certain very strong base of electoral support, that anything could happen. And, and so – yeah, I, I'm I'm really troubled by this, and it's not not often that I find myself in agreement with Ted Cruz, uh, but uh, at least I'm in partial agreement with, with Teddy on this one. So that's uh, that always concerns me. Something must be wrong if that is the case. And <laughs> but but you know, there's there's another aspect of this here. Kevin McCarthy has had to say something, and he said uh, again, the House of Representatives will hold Alvin Bragg accountable. And my first thought was. How exactly does that work, given if if at least Republicans used to believe in something called federalism and the idea yes. that an independently elected uh, state or sorry, city or county official uh, could be held accountable, put in the dock by the federal government? My God, Republicans of a previous generation would be aghast at that sort of thing. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. But again. It changed with 2016 because in 2016 and 2020, you had elections that were clearly federal individuals reaching into local levels to see what was going on. And man, I could actually, I'm going to take it back even further. I'm going to go back to 2008 where, um, you know, you had Barack Obama who had so much money compared to John McCain. John McCain raised a total of about 300 million. Barack Obama raised 1.2 billion for the first time in history. An individual had done that. And so Barack began to independently fund congressional and local races that would then help him in the future to see his plans work. And it did. We had a complete flip of the judicial systems of almost all of the district courts, save two in the entire country, from Republican majorities to Democrat majorities. And on the heels of that, then the Same-Sex Marriage Act was passed. So you know, we can see that if you're not watching when when the courts are moving or when a president has power to be able to make a ripple effect, it has a giant repercussion on not only law, but legality in the future. And I think we're really dangerously close to that here, too. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, the other thing that occurred to me is is wow, I wouldn't want to be a juror. 
on this trial. I mean, Donald Trump has already said that potential death and destruction could result from his being indicted. He's called Bragg uh, uh, an animal, a degenerate psychopath. I mean, it's just going to it's just going to escalate from that. And that's going to make it even harder, I think, even if there is a, a smoking gun situation, which there clearly isn't here, to to for jurors to be comfortable in their own safety to vote uh, that that Trump is guilty of this. And so that's, I think, a, a really significant concern as well. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Now, one of the clarification points we have to make is that um, I often get asked, this language is so different from anything we've seen in the past, right? And I think there's a difference in its continuance. And what I mean by that is if we look back at the elections of, for example, um, Jackson or Lincoln, um, some of the ads, as well as some of the accusations that were made, <laughs> worse than anything that we could ever, ever encounter here. And I mean, we're we're talking about Lincoln being accused of bestiality with monkeys. And I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah. However, um, it it was individual to those times. So it was kind of um, exceptional, but with Lincoln going through the Civil War, as well as with Jackson going through the split in the parties that happened um, in the 1820s, 1830s, uh, it, it was just part of that process. I don't think we have that here. And so people don't just chalk it up. You're talking about the safety of the jurors. And I'm going back to it. This language, um, without that understanding of he's just using hyperbole, is a very, very dangerous um, kind of rhetoric to utilize especially, and we can go all the way back then to World War II, if you have nothing in your life and someone gives you something to hate or to move on, then it can become your thing. Yeah. We saw that in the shoot up of the pizza place of that. Remember Hillary Clinton and the pedophile ring. And I mean, mm -hmm. so people have to be careful about throwing that out. But but Trump, more than anybody else, he's so entertaining to watch when he gets off script because he makes comments that that are incendiary, that other presidents haven't done, because usually when they hit the presidency, they stay on task and on script completely. The rhetoric diametrically changes 180 degrees. And what one of the research projects I did with a student found that he continued that rhetoric all the way through the presidency. His his 3 a.m. tweets did not stop. So it's a it's a very interesting conundrum there, Mike. Yeah, and certainly not a not a good thing. We'll be talking a lot more about this as as we go through the process. And I do not expect anything good to come of this. I will make a prediction, probably the prediction I'm most confident of, of well, probably, I don't know any prediction I made, but I will say that Donald Trump will not be convicted of whatever it is he's being charged with here. I feel I'm going to say, oh, let's go with 94% certainty with <laughs> knowing what I know. I, I think uh, I will I'll probably side with you on this one. Oh, that it, it either comes to a lack of an indictment that would actually occur, but uh, I, I think it'll be in legal uh, limbo for years and years and years. I mean, he's not a, a businessman who can lose millions and gain millions and then lose double those millions and never go to jail or anything else unless you have a really cracked legal team um, that can just hold it up for years and years. So I, I, I will side with you on this one 100%, Mike. All righty. Well, we will, like I said, come back to this as events merit, and sadly they will. But uh, that's it for this one for now. And we will just take a quick break and be right back to talk about another deeply unfortunate incident. So there was yet another school shooting this past week, this time at the Covenant School, a private Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, where 
28-year-old Audrey Hale took the lives of three children and three adults before being killed by officers. And this is the 19th shooting at a U.S. school or university in 2023 in which at least one person was wounded. Documents from the shooter show that the attack was clearly planned and targeted at the school, and three weapons were found at the scene, an AR-15, a Caltech Sub-2000 rifle, and a handgun. And when police executed a search warrant at Hale's home, they seized two shotguns, one of them a sawed-off shotgun. Hale, who's a former student at the school, was biologically female, identifying as transgender. And Nashville Chief of Police John Drake told the media that Hale may have had some resentment for having had to attend the Covenant School. A number of prominent Republicans have suggested that the shooting is essentially violent retaliation for recent Republican efforts to restrict or ban gender-affirming medical services for minors, and that's including in Tennessee. In fact, this year, Republicans have introduced close to, by one count, 500 anti-trans bills with Republican legislatures approving bans on gender-affirming care in 10 states to this point. President Biden told reporters... I've gone to the full extent of my executive authority to do on my own anything about guns and that the Congress has to act. The majority of the American people think having assault weapons is bizarre. It's a crazy idea. They're against that. And so I think the Congress should be passing the assault weapons ban. I can't do anything except plead with the Congress to act reasonably. So here we are again talking about another mass shooting, another school shooting. Gav, what's your take on this one, Ryan? first part is it's horrible. Um, I thought that after Sandy Hook, right after Sandy Hook, that something would be different. Um, And so it seems like every year we get a new Uvalde, uh, we get a new Nashville. um, And it it just becomes kind of a confluence of different issues. Um, You have a, a listener who goes by Dark Claw. Um, and said that this conflates gun and mental health. Uh, and I think it does. It's it's for politicians. It's an excuse, though. You know, when they're interviewing politicians and they're saying, OK, this isn't a gun issue. It's a mental health issue. OK, well, all right. Just pretend for a second that, that cars had something wrong with them. And would you blame the people or the car or both? It's not it's not a situation where they are mutually exclusive. We can look into situations that will help. Um, and if you talk to gun owners, that's that's what blows my mind is that everybody has been kind of shuffled into a far right or far left. But if you talk to gun owners, many gun owners are very, very, very much in favor of increased safety measures um, in trying to make sure that the weapons that they have safely um, that will be able to be utilized safely. Now, you know, when you're talking about Joe Biden and the assault rifle, um you know, that that becomes, though, another knee jerk reaction um, that it's it's not owning an assault rifle. It's the person using them. OK, well, but if you access that, then you have access to that. It's like the District of Columbia. They outlawed uh, pistols um, about 20 years ago. Handguns were the number one source of crime in the District of Columbia. And the Supreme Court ruled that unconstitutional for them. And I mean, if you're District of Columbia, you're waving your hands and going, what more can we do? Uh, how can we help? Um, and and I was touched personally by this. We went to that church when I was in Nashville. Al Gore's mom uh, attended that church while he was running for president. We were there. 
Um, and, and Aiden went to their preschool. My daughter did. Mom went to their, or Tanya went to the mothers of preschoolers there. Um, Johnny Cash and his wife were there when we went. Tanya met Johnny Cash um, at a mothers of preschoolers thing. So you're having a school where someone was targeted. Um, I think the worst possible thing that could have happened in this situation was that it would be linked to some kind of hatred by a trans person to go back and get revenge. And I say that because um, if I'm looking for some kind of violent result, given the uh, state laws that are going down, this just gave that an example. And this is a reason why now we have to outlaw trans in every way, shape or form. So I, I think it's not only tragic, Mike, but I think it's um, incredibly unfortunate in separating out these two issues and will conjoin them in ways that probably will be used horribly for uh, the upcoming election. I expect the rhetoric will be vitriolic. I think it'll be incredibly hateful um, and it'll be okay because this will qualify it. So yeah. I, it's a, uh, it's I mean, seriously concerning. Yeah. We, I mean, we've already seen a, a number of prominent figures on the right suggest that this is, you know, an anti, uh, this, this is exactly what happens when you have sort of by definition deranged trans people, because those two things are essentially the same. And it, you, I think you're right. It plays right into a certain false narrative uh, about. Uh, well, it's a duck too, man. Uh, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's a duck and cover. Yeah. Like if I'm a politician and there are two things that people are talking about right here, and one is guns, and we are not going to touch that as politicians because next year is an election year. Can you imagine if I'm a Republican and compromised on the issue of guns? Or can you imagine if I'm a Democrat and did the same thing? So they're not even going to touch that situation. So they throw it then at, well, it's a mental health issue. Well, what are you going to do about it then? Because if it just means outlawing trans people, that is not helping a mental health situation. And I don't think a lot of people understand the work that is going to go into this because you have to roll up your sleeves and go, OK, then we need to create a federal health care database for gun ownership. And we have to have doctors that then have registered diagnoses that when a patient has that, they will have to be entered on the database that then gun shops will have to be accessed as well, or they'll have have to have access to that. And and where do we draw the line then? So is it depression? You know, if you have been diagnosed with depression, does that outlaw you from gun ownership? Uh, what about autism? Uh, what about I mean, we could take this in 100 million different directions. So saying, well, it's a mental health issue, then do something about mental health instead of spinning wheels and just kicking it down uh, to somewhere else. Let's let's figure that out. We don't have mental health support. Yeah, and I, let me tell you, uh, yeah. for, for those that are trans, Mike, where you're looking at a suicide rate of nearly 83 percent when they're not given support within their home or community, that seems like a giant issue to have that be the leading cause of death among trans kids instead of just kicking it down and going, look at this insane person who came with a gun. Now we have to push back. No more drag queen story time. Yeah. I, I mean, sorry I, about the yeah. rant there. No, I, no, I, I apologize. I, no, <laughs> I, I, I agree because I, I think you can make a reasonable case that, well, this is in part, in large part, a mental health issue because almost by definition, people in a good state of mental health do not commit mass shootings. Yes. But, but, right. But there are mental health issues in every country in the world. And unless you're arguing that America is uniquely messed up in terms of mental health, which is a whole other issue, I'm not going to I'm not right. going to go there. I don't even know that that's the case, but I'm going to assume it's not. But if you say, well, we have the same sort of mental health issues that other countries have, but yet we have far more permissive gun laws. Well, then that would mean that to get our gun deaths down, we would have to do considerably more 
than other countries do on mental health. And we're not even equipped to do, in many cases, the same amount that almost every other industrialized country is doing. And so, yeah, it's, it's dodging uh, yep. the issue. Yep, 100 percent. Yeah. And there's no way to reengage it without heavy lifting. And nobody's going to do that right now. And you know what, Mike, when we were in Lafayette, my daughter's first job was at the Grand Theater in Lafayette. And her first Thursday off in her first two months working, they had a shooting. And I, I don't know if y'all remember it or not, but um gentleman went into the movie theater, mm -hmm. stood up yep. a, in the middle of a showing and killed two people. And, and I had a representative come to my class and he said, well, you know what? I could have gotten in a car and driven into people in line and killed more people than this individual did. It's not the gun. And one, I went, that is the most horrific comparison I have ever heard in my entire life. And two, that's not true. If I can only get access to a knife, I can kill people. Yep, if I am struggling mentally, but I can't blow people into pieces by walking through an area unless I have a high-powered rifle um, that is meant for combat. And so I think it is just a duck and cover of, will we're just going to take the same party line. And unfortunately, Mike, I feel like a couple months from now, yeah. um, we'll be discussing this whole yeah. thing all over again. Yeah, I mean, if after Las Vegas in 2017, 60 dead, oh, over, over 800 injured uh, for various causes well, to that, I mean, that led to no congressional legislation, just a ban on bump sucks. That was it. So, I mean, I think we can safely say that there is almost no conceivable act, mass shooting act, that would lead to that. And, and so I get that a lot of people on the left say, well, that's... That's horrific. I agree. But I think it's also important to understand the view of this from the right, which I don't agree with. But I think it's important to put out there is it's, you know, it's uh, the you could call it the good guy with a gun argument. And now a lot of folks yeah. would say, well, wait a second, though. There's no, there are over 430 million civilian firearms in the U.S. How many more good guys with guns do we need? But. There's another way to look at this, and that's, uh, for instance, there's uh, one study from 2017 from the American Journal of Public Health found that around 3 million Americans carry a handgun on a daily basis. That's less than 1%. And I think the argument from some folks on the right is, well, what if it were 1% isn't enough to deter anything, but let's say it's 10% or 20%. And so to a lot of folks, and I know this is hard for a lot of my, my friends on the left to wrap their head around, me too, is that the problem maybe is that we just have far fewer, too few guns, not too many guns. And if that's the underlying premise, the underlying belief, then that's not going to that's not going to change that viewpoint. No matter how many people are killed, we're not going to see gun restriction legislation because the definition of the problem is fundamentally different. Yeah. And I, I am very hesitant to go down that slippery slope just because that assumes full rationality and that people do what they should do and take the training courses that they should take. And don't like, don't let eight year olds fire Uzis if they're not allowed to at a, at a shooting course. I mean, we can go through this entire thing, but if if you're Hobbesian, and, and I am, and I keep trying to go back to Locke, and I keep trying to be in favor of people and go, people can own stuff. <laughs> but guess what? If one person owns that weapon, and that weapon was used to murder my kid, I don't want that weapon ever again out in the public. I don't care what it looks like. So, you know, I, I understand, and this is not a a, a preach about anti-gun possession. Not, not that at all. We've ping-ponged an assault weapon ban since Reagan, I think. I know for Clinton they did. Um, and they just went back and forth and back and forth. Republican presidents make it legal. Democrats make it illegal. So it's not that new. 
but something fundamentally has to to change in order to and I don't know if it's security at at schools Mike I mean we uh, we had looked at in Louisiana having those soldiers who returned from active duty um, be able to be assigned to the schools where their kids are and and then you do have someone who who is there at every door but Good Lord, do are we a country that needs someone at every single door just to make sure? But I mean, in Nashville, they just shot through the door, walked under it, and then went into the school. So you know, a, a closed door isn't really a, a hesitation for anybody who's who's going to do harm. But you know, it, it is that question of what lengths do we go to in terms of regulation of arms, and do we do what kind of check, and where do we do those checks, and, and how much do they have to do them, and are there waiting periods, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, you know, in the end, I'll come back to what, what I always conclude after one of these things is as a country, at least enough, enough Americans have concluded this is the price we are willing to pay for freedom. Uh, these, this particular right, this many deaths, this many more deaths per capita or total, however you want to measure it, than practically every other country in the world. And that's a trade-off that whether or not they're aware of it, uh, you know, a large portion of the country is willing to make. And that's not a trade-off I'm willing to make, but that's where we're at right now. Yeah, and I, I think um, the fact that some people aren't willing to make that trade-off but are forced to, given the situation of our public schools, is, is completely unfair. I, and I think that, um, you know, before 9-11, uh, we talked about how we needed increased security, and then it was a a punch in the face of the United States where we went, we need to completely redo the FAA to make sure that it is safe when people travel. And then we go to other things that cause deaths, many more deaths, like like guns, and we don't even do a re-up to check and see what should we keep legal, what should we not, because technology is going to outpace anything we can do in making them. You know, you talked about illegalization of, of uh, bump stocks. That's fine. Now they just 3D print them. Um, and so it's a way to get around a loophole. And in fact, some of the representatives, when it came out, said, okay, here's the loophole for the bump stocks and here's how you print them. How, how do you even have a conversation with someone if they don't believe that it's a fundamental issue that's facing people? And unfortunately, I think um, until you're individually touched by violent crime, which, Mike, um, almost everybody I talk to has been touched in one shape, way, shape or form by somebody who's been shot or, or has died of violent crime. I guess until that happens, then we are not going to take a whole lot of position on it. And well, uh, we, we will move from bad to yes, it, it can, in fact, get worse. How about existential? <laughs> you know, we keep on we're going down and down. People oh, like, okay, I'm, I'm rethinking the show, man. All right. OK, <laughs> if, if yeah, if, if you haven't if you pop the gummy at this point, maybe you know it's too late for you. But anyway, <laughs> it's Friday. You know, there you go. <laughs> but anyway, so this week. More than 1,400 tech executives and tech researchers signed an open letter calling for a six-month pause in the development of AI technologies that are more advanced than GPT-4, arguing that further advancements in AI pose what they call profound risks to society and humanity. They believe the pause is necessary to allow time for the industry to develop safety protocols that would apply across the field and that are independently verified. And they further call on the letter for the industry to work with policymakers on oversight, certification of systems, liability rules, funding for AI research, and societal changes AI is likely to bring, all as part of a what they call a new and capable regulatory authority de uh, dedicated to AI. 
And those signing the letter include Elon Musk, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, and entrepreneur and 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. And the letter, it's a project of uh, something called the Future of Life Institute. It's founded back in 2015. Their mission is to steer what they call transformative technology towards benefiting life and away from extreme large-scale risks. And even OpenAI doesn't really disagree in a statement the company released in late February, they, or I don't know, maybe they're AI, right? At some point, it may be, yeah, I thought you like that. <laughs> At some point, it may be important to get independent review before starting to train future systems. And we think public standards about when an AGI, that's artificial uh, general intelligence effort, should stop a training run, decide a model is safe to release, or pull a model from production use are important. Finally, we think it's important that major world governments have insight about training runs above a certain scale. So, Ryan, how how concerned are you about AI development and really the, the, the absence of any significant government regulations to this point? Oh, geez. Wow. Um, at least it wasn't a loaded question. Um, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> uh, first of all, I think you have to take Elon Musk out of this entire discussion. Um, let's do that. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, throw him out. Let's, let's go with the others who are kind of making commentary on this. And, um, what I would say, and this is much a, much more a political behavior look is that our country probably lags by, I would say 20 years, if not 30 in terms of technology and just recognition of changes in technology. Um, I mean, there's step one. They're still treating the Internet as a, a utility and taxing it the same way just because of that stupid net neutrality thing that went through and just gutted the Internet. But AI is something so completely different that hoping for any kind of regulation, how would you let Congress regulate AI? I mean, what would they say? Uh, don't let it think. Um, and so I think looking towards the government uh, for the solution is not going to be the way to go. I think independently looking at those who are experts, not only in the AI, but I mean, this is we're getting into kind of theoretical physics here, Mike. These are these are questions that are larger than what we are giving them time for right now. And what I mean by that is, you know, South Park did an episode about um, AI writing papers. Um, and uh, now a lot of news channels are doing that as well, that they can get the information that is synthesized from a million different places on the internet and their AI will go ahead and write the story and put it out for them and they don't even have to touch it. Now, um, the dangers for higher education, for professors to be able to uh, discern, because it's not copied, it's an original work of AI, uh, becomes nearly impossible. Um, so then educators would have to be subjectively looking at a student and going, can they write this paper? And that's absolutely the opposite of anything we even want to do. Now, that's on the that's on the low side of AI. Now we're talking about the high side of AI. Now we're talking about the thinking um, of the major utilities of, of our electrical grids, um, of use in the military, uh, use in uh, nearly all the power structures we have. And when they're saying, when the people who created the AI are saying we need to... Um, slow down or stop. Um, if they're scared, we should be terrified, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, on that, I got to say a couple of things to maybe bring that home. Go for it. There was a uh, survey in 2022 of over 
14, I believe over 1,400 IT professionals in uh, North America, Europe, Asia, uh, 49% of the respondents agreed with the statement, innovation in AI presents an existential threat to humanity. Four, four, 49%. Existential yeah. threat. I mean, and then we have uh, what's his name, Representative uh, Obernote. He's a, a Republican from California. He's the only member of Congress with an advanced degree in AI. He said to the media, "You'd be surprised how much time I spend explaining to my colleagues that the chief dangers of AI will not come from evil robots with red lasers coming out of their eyes." I mean, so yeah. it's a huge. I, you know, you're absolutely right about policy and regulation being like a generation behind what's going on. And given the stakes, I think that you know, this is a really dangerous period. But but I also think there's something to be said for the argument that, well, how would, even if we had the political will and had the knowledge-based expertise in Congress to try to put through a pause, that would obviously be a pause in the U.S. And of course, it's not like China would necessarily pause, and they're kind of number two. If you, I mean, there's there's a lot of AI research in, in a number of EU countries as well, but China's right up there. They have something like in the last in recent years, they have I think over fourteen thousand applied for over fourteen thousand AI related patents. The U.S. is first; it's somewhere over sixteen thousand. But they're they're right up there, you know. And so, how do we know they're going to do that? And if there's if, if we are going to have robot overlords. I would prefer that they be U.S. <laughs> robot overlords. I don't know. That's just me. Uh, that, you know, I think uh, if your listeners uh, have not had an opportunity, uh, they hired one of these AI, not hired, uh, they had one of these AI uh, paint a picture of the future of humanity. And what they painted was an apocalyptic nightmare scape with humans that had phones built into their arms crawling around. And it, you, you take a look at that and go, okay, all uh -huh, right, yeah. that's, that's a little scary. But, but I'm on the flip side of that. I'm going to play devil's advocate probably a lot on here. But John Stuart Mill basically says, hey, man, innovation is the wave of the future, you know? I mean, all the way to death, let people do this. And so if it is the next future, should we let the tech companies just come hands off, like go to town. You know, the cloning is a perfect kind of parallel. You know, North Korea, um, as well as South Korea, huge into cloning. You want a dog cloned uh, from a dog that you had passed away in the past? There you go, $30,000 in South Korea. Um, but then you take that issue of cloning and can it be used for good? Yeah, to grow organs and to do stuff like this. Um, and then you have Russia that's working with, it's either Argentina or Brazil, um, to bring back dinosaurs in the middle of Russia. They are going to use their DNA and try and, and clone them out. And then oh, you go, that could be a good idea. What could go wrong? Well, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. And I mean, in Chile, they actually grew a pair of T-Rex legs on a chicken. Um, and what happened is just uh, put it down before it hatched and, and survived. Um, but if we're doing that, holy cow. And, and, and AI, I think, is very much the same way. As you turn over issues to artificial intelligence, it's going to make a decision based upon its programming and what it sees as what is right because you're turning it over to them. And I think that discussion of what is right and wrong and, and how to uh, take it and grow with it. Gosh, yeah, somebody's and, got to have that. And, and I think like our government doesn't at all. Well, and, and the pace of change is so much 
Oh, yeah. So much quicker. I mean, right now we know that GPT-5 is in training. There are reports it's going to be completed by the end of 2023, released by the middle of 2024. And there are some people involved with it who say that it might actually get to that AGI level, meaning that it could essentially comprehend and learn at any sort of cognitive task that a human can. And so we're, we're so far behind the curve on this. Europe is a, is a little bit ahead of us. There's this uh, EU AI Act that was first proposed a couple of years yeah. ago, uh, and it has some, uh, I think, some pretty good ideas. They focused mainly on things like facial recognition and, and uses yeah. linked to things like infrastructure, right? Uh, and they had they had a series of, they have a series of penalties involved that up to 6% of, of companies' global revenue that violate various safety protocols. But that hasn't even been passed. And again, there's enforcement and all that. So I, I really think that the, the genie's out of the bottle here and whatever's going to happen is is going to happen at this point. I, I don't really see there being any sort of significant legislative action by Congress or regulatory action that's going to stop any of this happening before it gets really beyond the control of, of, of most anyone. Yeah, the, the could we is often um, never uh, replaced with the should we. And so I think in this regard, and especially not if a government agency doesn't come and go, how about we give it a little more thought and, and figure out how we're going to regulate this or what it can do. Um, and, and so more often that, I mean, we're not going backwards from the iPhone. You know, when we make uh, technological innovation like this, we don't ever backtrack. So now it's just figuring out what that looks like in the future. If, if I'm looking at work, then I'm thinking that you're going to have trucking that changes. It'll all be AI. Um, all factory labor will be AI. Um, they will, uh, this will change the way manual labor and even what we consider as some white collar jobs are done. Uh, half the people you chat, in fact, probably most of the chats online are all AI, even if it says you're talking to somebody. And now you have most of the vocals be deep fakes too. That if you're calling in for assistance, you're getting a computer that's addressing you in a voice. How are we ever going to differentiate the real from the not at that point, short of, of meeting someone face to face? So I think there are these giant issues that we have to try and hammer out before we figure it out. So I'm kind of siding with the the tech guys on this one. Yeah, that that's what really scares me are the uh the political uses of this. I I saw the picture of, you know, the uh the Pope in the puffy white jacket oh, yeah. that was faked and the uh, the one of Donald Trump being dragged away by police and and you know, as oh, this yeah. gets better, I I just that to me is will we essentially lose any ability to distinguish truth from falsehood. And, and what does that mean for the future of democracy in America and the future of just humanity? Yeah, differentiation is going to be uh, nearly impossible. I don't know if you remember the one that uh, Trump had when he was at the, I think it was one of the summits, and had him sitting, and it looked like uh, that Putin was giving direct commands to Trump sitting there. And that was just an overlay photograph that they had changed. And so if if that and the uh, the Pope getting into a puffy jacket. Yeah. I mean, it, you're having, oh, he shouldn't be wearing that fashion. And you're going, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Y'all, come on. He just got out of the hospital. He can barely breathe. Come on now. But if you don't have that connectivity and I send out an update of what is and you don't know it's fake, then that is what is. And so that's where the scary really comes across, I think. Yeah, definitely. And there are, of course, a, a ton of military uh, applications to this as well that we haven't even gotten into. And that really, that, that is 
really, really disturbing, which is why I know, I, I know there are some people who are saying, well, China understands that it would not necessarily be in its best interest. The Chinese don't want to destroy humanity as well. But I don't I don't. I don't think they do, but I don't think that they would necessarily stop. I think that the development is going to continue, and all we can do is, like I said, hope that the systems that are coming into place give us more of a future that uh, – I think it's uh, John Maynard Keynes was talking about in the 30s, envisioning, you know, uh, 20, 30 hour work weeks with people with a lot of leisure to do things that they found personally rewarding. And I mean, there is there is a, a well, not necessarily utopian, but a positive future you can think of with AI taking oh, yeah. more of these burdens away. But I think we're also so inclined to look to the negative. But I, given Given the existential risk that it seems like a non-trivial percentage of people who actually n understand this stuff to the extent that it can be understood, feel there is, I, you know, that's that's scary. But as far as I can tell, there doesn't seem to be any sort of reasonable policy response, at least that I've seen, that will address things quickly enough to kind of make sure that or to minimize the possibility of truly bad things happening though, though maybe i'm wrong i mean like i said gpt5 doesn't come out until it won't won't hit until probably mid 2024 and those dates oftentimes slip and that's maybe that is enough time for something to happen but i don't see that there's the political will or the understanding for that to happen uh, mike i would i would draw that parallel almost directly to net neutrality yet again i mean if if people wonder why there is Peacock Plus and Hulu Plus and CBS Plus and ESPN Plus and why Verizon is offering Disney, but AT&T is locked into to Netflix. Um, go back and take a look at that because it's exactly the same kind of thing. It's a new innovation, Wi-Fi, which they don't know how to regulate. So they treat it like phone calls, like the telemarketers used to, and then use it that way so that they can each make individual contracts with fast lanes for coverage for those that they have links to. So if you're watching HBO and you're through Verizon and it's slowing down, it's probably because they don't have a link with Verizon. And when you signed up, it said that we can slow down any of the things that we don't have corporate partnerships with. So, so now we're kind of looking back and going, well, crap, I'm getting this blinky donut all the time and I can't get access here. And why am I having to pay for four streaming services? And we go back and go, oh, I get it, net neutrality. I mean, this has the entire feel of that where it will evolve in the background and 10 years from now will just kind of be a thing. You know, whether it's in the syllabi that says, if this is AI delivered, then it is an F for a course, or if it's something that that checks deep fakes. I don't know what that is, but I feel like the government will not react in time. And so we're looking at the corporations to be self-regulators and we know that is a dangerous prospect to have people regulate themselves. Yeah. And then there are the, the tech utopians who say, well, maybe this is an argument for just turning over more of the decision making to the AI yeah. system. I mean, I asked I asked uh, uh, GPT what, what, for its top five recommendations to minimize the possible ex existential risk of advanced AI. It gave me what I thought was a pretty good list to be like, yeah, I could I could vote for that. you know, <laughs> and, and all in a two and a half seconds or something like that, you know, but but seriously. There are people who would say that's the answer is that if humans have essentially lost the ability to comprehend change at a pace that's required, given the pace of change, that means that those decisions should be taken to a certain extent 
out of the hands of humans and put into the hands of expert systems that aren't going to have the human biases and the slowness of human reasoning and decision making. And that that maybe that's right. Maybe that's the future. But God, it's not necessarily a future I'm looking forward to living in, though I think I, I will be at some point. Well, I know that now that you have asked the AI for reasons not to have AI uh, in the background, you are on a list that they have talked uh, to each other about. So the toaster and fridge will not work in your house. You I go. have a feeling <laughs> uh, because you asked uh, how to end AI. I'm only kind of joking there, but if it's a collection of information, uh, you know, information is collected every time you move your phone, uh, much less anything you type on it. And if it's all collection of information and AI has access to all this information, Think about the wonderful things that we can cure. And I'm going to play devil's advocate for you here, because if maybe nobody individually or maybe a lot of people individually are looking at things, but not together, collectively combining them to say this is what's happening across the country in a way that's meaningful. And I think AI can bring that research together from across the entire globe and go, hey, this worked in India. It would work in the Sudan or, hey, this is something they're doing in Minnesota. It would work in New Mexico. So I think there are amazing, amazing applications that could help us in infinite ways, um, but just don't kind of want the the war game scenario with Matthew Broderick, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, that that goes back to, you know, are, are you being more more, more Hobbesian or, or Lockean in that sense? Yep, and, there you go. Know, yeah. and, and I don't know, but I tend to be I tend to be much more of the belief that people do stupid, irrational things far too often when given the chance. And so, you know, nasty, brutish and short seems much more likely to me than a bunch of rational individuals making intelligent, utility maximizing uh, decisions, you know, so especially under situations. Man, of stress. I, I, man, I waffle so much on that, Mike. I, all I want to be is a fan of humanity. Um, and, and Plato and Lord of the Rings did the same thing. You know, if you turn that ring sideways and can disappear, what would you do? And unfortunately, uh, you know, you turn on the news and you go, man, if people were invisible, they would do some pretty horrific things. Um, and so uh, I'm hoping to be moved into the lot camp at some point. But Hobbes yeah. has got his claws in me right now. Well, yeah. It, it, well, and too, it, it's it's asymmetric because it reminds me of something that I think was LBJ once said. He said, you know, any jackass can knock down a barn, but it takes a community to build one. And that's the thing is that it only takes a few bad actors with powerful tools, whether they're whether they're handguns or, or assault weapons or advanced AI. And that's that's the problem is it's always easier to destroy than to create. And when we can create more and more powerful tools that even the creators don't really understand how they work, that to me is yeah. just a recipe for a potentially devastating future. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I had a an astronomy department uh, that was very, very interested in the new satellite that they put up because, you know, they got the most recent pictures that were back to the beginning of time. And I had a, a physics professor in my office and said, I mean, are we going to go back far enough where all of a sudden it's just a picture of God waving at us? I mean, is that what what are we going to see when we go back before we knew what time was, you know, and and the answers, again, are all bets are off because we're discovering things at such a fast pace, um, especially given the solar system and other things that that uh, you can't back her down. You can't back her back. And so I, I really think AI is going to move forward. And I would hope that it's done in a way that that uh, I don't know. I don't know, Mike. That's why it's so weird is because are we talking about respecting the technology? Are we talking about it have having empathy built into it? Are we talking about it being useful and not um, offsetting jobs for people? I don't know. Uh, and that's why I think it's such a massive issue that the government really needs to jump into pretty quickly. But guess what? 
it's the year before an election year. So I guarantee nothing will be touched until at least 2025. And and by then, AI could be running our elections. Yeah. Kind of a joke, but not yeah. completely. Well, yeah, yeah, there's that. Speaking astronomically, I guess, there's that that one theory that you know, they're with all these planets and suns and potentially habitable worlds, why haven't we found any trace of intelligent life in other places. And that one theory holds that, well, once a civilization gets to a certain level of advancement, it in some way or another destroys itself. And uh, I don't know, but yeah, I, I, there, maybe there's something to that, but I always try to keep in mind that people who grow up in a certain world, as they get older, tend to be more naturally suspicious and hesitant about change. And so I want to put that in there because I'm no longer a young guy. And maybe it's that bias that's coming because, you know, back in my day, we had newspapers oh, yeah. and and looked things up and libraries and books and all that. Yeah, you know, I don't yeah. want to be that guy. So I, I do. Yeah. I think it's always important to account for our own potential biases and certainly our the generational context, the civilizational context in which we grew up. That makes a difference in our reasoning, and we should you know, keep that in mind. Well, and if we see the impact even that social uh, – let, let's use social networks um, have had. So, you know, Facebook, uh, one of the first, MySpace before that, if you will, and kind of this ebb and flow with TikTok and Insta and Snapchat and things. Um, you know, they just launched, and that's what we did. And now we have an entire generation whose self-esteem is solely based on uh, like shares or comments each day. And that their entire life is based around their evaluation of themselves or others' evaluation of them in social media. And boy, yeah, we could have horrible. talked about one about 20 years ago, you know, and said, okay, this is how we should deal with that. So they don't understand, but but we're not going backwards on this. You know, you can tell the tech is not going to move backwards. Um, and so it's just how do we deal with it moving forwards? All right. Well, we still have a lot to talk about, but we are uh, out of time for our regular show. And so we're going to get to on the midweek show, we're going to be talking about the United States versus Hanson, an interesting immigration slash free expression question. Uh, the Philip, the big filibuster in Nebraska on the trans, uh, anti-trans bill there. And uh, what we've learned, if anything, 20 years on from the beginning of the Iraq War and all that will be on the midweek show. But before we, uh, before I go, before I do that, I want to thank some new supporters. We recently received an anonymous contribution through Patreon. So we don't know who you are, but you do. And whoever you are, thank you so much for your support. Also, awesome. thank you so much. Yeah. And there's also Zoe who took advantage of our Patreon supporter free trial. And that, of course, is where you can get. All of the benefits becoming a supporter for free for a month. And there are a number of those benefits. You get the midweek show and this show ad free. And you get to be part of our Discord group if you want, where there's all kinds of interesting stuff going on. Uh, Ryan mentioned Dark Claw, who's a frequent contributor, always has some interesting things to say on there. A bunch of, a bunch of great folks on there. I really enjoy it. And so various other things, other levels of support as well to check it all out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If Patreon's not your thing, you want to support us on Venmo or at politicsguys, you can also support us through PayPal. All of our support links are in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get the, that midweek show, but right now you're not able to financially support us, totally not a problem. Just shoot me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get that set up for you. 
And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you happen to be listening on, and share episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us, our email is mailapoliticsguys. There's that Discord channel I already mentioned for supporters. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to all of that in the show notes. And finally, a very special thanks, as always, to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you'll join us.